Welcome to Tunnel Vision, episode 43, and happy Hanukkah 44, <laughs> says producer Andrew Hazlitt incredibly diplomatically just pumped it in there, like a little bit of verbal whiteout. Happy Hanukkah, happy December, we missed you during American Thanksgiving, and we're back with a fabulous show this week with guest Stowe Boyd. First, I'll explain about Tumbling. Tumble Vision is a leading show about the art of social engagement. We talk about business and tech and culture with an eye towards humanizing it. And tumbling is an old Yiddish term. It means to catalyze other people to action. And it's something that uh, Kevin Marks, Deb Schultz, and I are convinced is really the skill set that's necessary to make web collaborations work, to make anything in a network environment really work. So uh, I know that it may not sound as exciting as it is. It's incredibly exciting. I just want to promise all of you a very exciting hour. We have really hmm. the best guests, I think, online, and we're proud to have the only explicit rated business show on the web. Woo-hoo! Without further ado, <laughs> are you, well, hello and welcome to everybody. Hi, everybody. Hey, D- Stowe, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's great to be here. And uh, welcome to your new home in Beacon, New York. That's right. I'm, uh, I'm here. It's, I'm semi-moved. I have another truckload of stuff coming next week, and then I'll be really here. So you've moved to the Hudson Valley. I'm talking to everyone today from uh, Pittsburgh. I'm the home of another friend, uh, a geek friend who moved out here, from, left San Francisco. He's Crusoe doing some stuff at Carnegie Mellon. And I think a lot of people are maybe not feeling they have to be in the Valley so much to do things, which is interesting. I, I think there's, well, specifically uh, New York is is like hunt is a live wire right now. And that's just a tremendous amount of stuff going on. And, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the decision of a week when I decided to, you know, close down my apartment and my office in San Francisco and, and uh, make New York my base of operations a year ago. Um, I mean, it, it was, it was something, you know, calculated over a long time. And I was, I was, I was happy to see how, uh, you know, active, uh, the, the tech renaissance, if you will, um, seems to be in uh, New York even then, but even more so now. And recently back from New York is uh, Deb Schultz, who will be with us in just a moment. And today, and she's back, I think, in San Francisco. And Kevin, are you in Silicon Valley? I'm, yes, I'm in uh, Mountain View, uh, down in Silicon Valley, in Ribbit offices. Ribbit offices. And do you feel like you have to be in the Valley anymore to do the work that you do? I think it still helps. There's, there's, there is something about um, it, but it's more because the other people are here too. I think there's a combination of being able to meet people face to face is really powerful, but also being in some place that other people come and visit is important too. So I can see why, why New York would work for that. You can, you obviously can do work from, from anywhere now and people do, but do you find you probably have to find you have to travel a fair bit as well? No, no, you're right. Exactly. One of the features of New York is it's one of the cities that people always show up to sooner or later. Like San Francisco or London, whatever. Yeah, it's helpful. I think it's helpful. I, I mean, I've been on this crazy, anybody who follows me on Twitter, which if you want to, it's H-E-A-T-H-R, knows I've been on this road trip for, really, I've been on the road for three months total, <laughs> but very intensely for the last month uh, that I'm calling my heart trip. I'm in a bit of a time of change in my life, and I've been in 15 cities in the last huh. uh, couple months, but especially in the last month, it's been like eight to 10, 11. And you really, if your life is, inter- is internet based, it's kind of amazing what you can do. 
I just can't pack my 30-inch monitor around. That's the problem. I know. I saw oh, a picture of you. I saw that picture of your office, and I was like, that monitor looks so good. I want that monitor. Oh, I'm going to have to take a look at that, Stu. I'm jealous. The single best productivity advice I can give anybody. Really? I completely thought it was. I completely thought it was a luxury item. And, in fact, when I That's got it, I, I don't know if you guys remember or not, but I auctioned my body off. I said I would wear <laughs> T-shirts. T-shirts. Yeah. Yes. So I wore T-shirts for other people for like 280 days or something, and um, and I raised Suckers. a lot of money. I raised like 3,600 bucks, and I used it. My 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 goal was to buy a 30-inch monitor, which I couldn't justify to myself. I said it's it's just luxury, but I was wrong. Okay, it, it turned out to be immensely helpful on a productivity basis. Just because of the real estate means you don't spend all your time moving windows around. It's wonderful. You probably write less headaches, I would think. So, so Stowe Boyd, self-described social philosopher, anthropologist. Uh, you spent a lot of time thinking about things that are social, about uh, the web, about flow. We like to open up television by talking a little bit about things that have gone on recently. So we're going to hit a couple of more recent um, issues, and then we'll try to get into some of your bigger pet. Topics including your recent defrag talk on social cognition. I would, we'd love to talk about flow. I know it's kind of a topic close to your heart and something you've thought a lot about. Um, we've had lots of lots of uh, people on the show, like Doc Searles and Kathy Sierra, and tend to be you know people who care about trying to have uh, the the web and business continue to I hopefully serve us rather than have us kind of be pods and serving some data system we're stuck with. Uh, like, or, you know, like a bad, like app, like Skype, which seemed to serve us better before <laughs> it's changed its mind. So, so in the last, in the last couple of weeks, uh, what has been up for, do you guys see Deb, Kevin Stowe in the news? I mean, the one, the top thing I'm, I'm thinking of that's kind of came up in, in our realm is the notion of gender as a text box, uh, being something that diaspora decided the, the, you know, which is this sort of startup or attempt to be an open source uh, social uh, social media challenger to Facebook that raised over $100,000 on Kickstarter because people were so mad at, at uh, Facebook. Uh, from what I'm hearing, it's not really working very well as a project, but they did start accepting gender as a text box, and there was all kinds of kerfuffle about that. And yeah. it brought up this sort of larger idea of <clears throat> is, is coding got to be inherently binary because of the nature of what it's like to build? I mean, that's what our... Our friend Deb Dave um, Spector was saying it's the nature of yeah. the media, not not necessarily the the nature of the people using it. Well, my my response to it was to the basically one one coder um, shouted out that that we should be able to you know simplify and be very binary about definitions and terms. And to me, whether we're talking about the issue from a you know. Uh, gender perspective or any other perspective, I think that the era of sort of the coder getting to say, I, I mean, I understand that there's, you know, coding is to a certain degree, black and white, but for, it was the attitude of the blog post that I had issue with, which is so you This was, by the way, just to be clear, to it us. was a post that was very critical of the fact that Kickstarter right. had done this. And this is someone who said, I'm not going to code on this open source project anymore because they did this. 
Exactly. And and to me, it was it was less about, and that's why it was interesting that some tweets went around where people were saying, you know, coding is a binary process. But of course, we all know that. We're not idiots. You have to make a choice at a certain point. What bothered me was sort of the attitude of you need to, we-, it was a very arrogant attitude and you need to wedge yourself into my behavior. And I actually think we're at a time where, you know, there's a little more give and take to it than that. I mean, I'm curious to hear Kevin and Kevin's point of view since he's much, since I can, don't code. I wish I did. Well, I think that's, well this is the thing. The, 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 this is a part of the thing we struggle with as programmers is you're trying to simplify the world into a model that fits. And there is this dreadful temptation to sort of build your own model of the world, construct that, and then complain when the world doesn't fit it. And that, that, right. that's basically what this, what this guy was doing. I think mean, I posted a comment on his thing saying that. It said, um, when the world doesn't fit your model, you shouldn't shout at the world. You should make your model better. Um, and that, you know, what, what, um, you know, and you can, there's, there's something you can, you know, there was a sort of legitimate uh, ground for debate with um, the particular implementation, which was if you just put a text field in there, then it ends up, um, it's, it's not helpful if you're trying to actually converge the common case. And that, there was some dis- debate about that. But then um, there was a great post from Metafilter, who've had a gender as a text field for 10 years, and they collected together all the things that people had typed in there, which is, which is wonderful. I, I was, oh, that's I'll find a link to that as well. Yeah, find that link. Um, and what, you know, what they said was, yeah, we've had this for 10 years. People have been you know, people are putting free text in there. We allowed them to go wild. And you know, several of them picked the obvious, you know, the obvious right. thing. And several picked text strings that you could constrain to be male or female. Um, and, and then plenty of others came up with playful and, and amusing things. And then uh, Sarah Dot wrote about this. And Sarah, Sarah we've, we had on before, and she runs a site called Gender Fork, which is explicitly for people. She, who, she also runs a site. I'm sorry to interrupt. She runs also a site about community, how communities work yes. online. But the other, I'm sorry, please finish with Gender Fork. So, so Gender Fork was, was explicitly set up for people who, who feel um, – they don't fit into the standard boxes um, for, for various reasons. Um, so on her site, effectively, the gender box is an essay question. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not even a simple text <laughs> string. And if you go to the gender fork and read what I people put that. there, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's much so far outside the bounds of um, what, you know, what these programmer guys were thinking that um, you know, it, they couldn't fit that in. But the, um, and it was, this is, you know, what, what we were seeing was cognitive dissonance in action. Basically, the programmers were saying, right. this doesn't fit my system. It must be wrong. That's um, my we, point. That was my point exactly. Like, it, you must fit into my system or it must be wrong. It's, it sums it all up. <laughs> well, isn't, isn't, isn't this similar? Isn't this a reflection or an echo of the, the, the ongoing argument between top-down taxonomies and bottom-up tags, for example? Yeah, yes. I think it's similar. Uh, it's it's very similar. So the notion is, hey, we're tagging ourselves. You don't tell me what set of tags I can apply to myself. Oh, I love what? that. You just nailed it. Yes, yes, that's that's exactly it. Yeah, you totally nailed it. I mean, and isn't that the difference between Twitter and Facebook? Well, yeah. I don't, yes. I don't know. Well, was, I doubt yeah. it. <laughs> this was this was. If well, you no, want to is, extend the metaphor, I think it is. Yes, it is. I mean, that was um, William Gibson said it this week that. Um, Right. Facebook is like a mall and Twitter is like the street. Um, right. Which, exactly. which you can bump into, as you said, you can bump into anybody on Twitter. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but, but also it has the sort of, you know, Jane Jacobs street feel of, yeah. 
you're watching over each other. You're keeping an eye on people well, because you just quoted Jane there. Jacobs. For those who don't listen, read Jane Jacobs if you want to understand social structures and urban cities, and hence the web. Yeah, although, she wrote. Although she's very difficult to read, actually. Yeah, I know she is, but you can find yeah, stuff. I, I find it pretty good to read. Um, Press Frontier and all that. You know. the, the, the Life and Death of American Cities is a pretty good read, yes. and um, Structures good. of Social Systems is written as a sort of. Um, Classical dialogue, and I think that one works quite well. That one's quite readable. No, I think it is. I think the life, the life and death of the life of American cities is actually like 140 pages too long because she makes her case 77 times or something. But But the first time she had to make it, yeah. Her her motives and and her conclusions are all dead on. Don't get me wrong. But I think this is this is an interesting an interesting issue. So, so we kind of feel like we're at this interesting moment in the web given what social media is doing around people paying attention to relationalness. And, and yet, I mean, we know there are lots of people trying to build others, you know, things that will kind of compete and on some level with Facebook and Twitter to have other ways of having social connections to people. And how much is this grassroots taxonomy issue, um, you know, critical in building uh, a social world that works and, and how much of that happens through, Tumbling, like I know you spent a lot of time when hashtagging first started happening on Twitter, trying to kind of pay attention to it and where are these things coming from. Are there certain individuals, do you think, that take an active role in trying to make, uh, trying to spread that around or say let's let's create consensus around something? Well, uh, you know, the whole notion of micro syntax was what I was interested in. The notion that uh, conventions, uh, if you will, of punctuation started to emerge um, and people started using special characters or other kinds of conventions to, to try to, you know, live inside the tiny, tiny confines of the 140 character limitation, but to carry a higher degree of, of information, you know, to, uh, you know, rely on, uh, you know, semicolons and backslashes and at signs and so on. And uh, Twitter is a great example of that, of course, because at sign and, and a variety of other conventions that have now been taken over by Twitter were originally, you know, th- conventions that emerged in use. And so it's, 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 that's a fascinating, just a fascinating study in itself. In fact, I was one of the people that howled the loudest when they were going to change the semantics of retweet and make it a, a thing that was different than we had grown accustomed to. And so, for example, now most Twitter clients provide you the ability to have classic versus modern or, you know, native retweeting, depending on what your proclivities are. And I, I think that there's something really fascinating in the things that people dream up and the conventions that, that emerge. Uh, one example of that was years and years ago, I was working with the guys at Mog, and this was before they launched, and they asked me to come in for a weekend when they had a bunch of... Do you of- mind explaining, so Stowe just mentioned, explain what Mog was? Right, right. It's a, it's a music site, um, you know, very, very popular and very successful, and um, uh, it was meant to be a very, you know, music-centric social networking solution. And they didn't know exactly where they were going to go and exactly what direction they were going to take. But in fact, what happened and blew my mind at this, uh, this, this offsite we had um, was in a way sort of unrelated. There was some young people they had brought in to be sort of a focus group. We were asking them questions and talking to them. And I didn't think much about it, but one of the guys was an 18-year-old designer, musician kind of guy. And he put his phone down on the table at the beginning of this meeting. And then about an hour and a half into the the meeting, I 
I heard a voice talking out of his phone and he leaned over and whispered something to it. And I said, what's that? He said, that's my partner. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, my partner. I said, but I didn't hear the phone ring or anything. He said, no, we're always online with each other. And I said, what? He said, whenever we're not together, actually working in the office together, we call each other first thing in the morning and we just stay on the phone line all day with each other. We can just overhear what's going on as if we're like at the desk next to each other. Wow. And I was, I just rocked back on my chair and I, I spent like the next hour, I was supposed to be working with these guys thinking about music. And I just thought about this thing that like this completely unexpected to me anyway, way of using the ability to, you know, say with your phone company, you've got five accounts that you want to have unlimited minutes with. But in this case, they really meant unlimited. I mean, they meant like they were online together all the time. And so I started to think about what, what kind of a world. When is it? was I'm, this? When was this? It was about, what, four years ago, I guess. And so, I mean, it, you know, those kids <laughs> are going to dream up new ways to use things like Twitter, new, you know, exclamation marks or whatever kind of punctuation marks to represent things that we can't anticipate. But it, that thing would just rolled my, my eyes back in my head. It was just astonishing. Yeah, but what's interesting about what you're talking about is it is, you know, Relating it to what we were talking about with the with the gender is not a text box issue, is that I do think that that there is a certain type of mentality with certain types of folks who are coding and creating new pieces of software that want to control the entire experience and make it precious. And this is the way it is. And then there are those who realize that in a, in an odd way, you're just putting down. And I'm trying not to use the word platform, but you're just here are the paintbrushes go make it the way you want. And I think we're only probably going to have more of that. But it is a re, I think it's a re, you know, usually we talk a lot about the culture shift in big companies or in society in general. I think it's really interesting that what we saw this week with this blog post is the culture shift that's going to happen among certain coders who realize, wow, maybe I don't have as much control as I thought I did, or it's not as black and white as I'd like it to be, or I feel uncomfortable. Right? I mean, right. so you, you think that there's going to be a change for people who are used to feeling like they really controlled the web? I mean, I, I think it's coming. Don't well, it, it, it's, it's a constant battle. This is like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, foxes and hares, you know, in a co-evolutionary loop. Uh, it never stops. So, you know, the companies in, innovate some new thing or they take something that, you know, users innovate and they try to turn it into something that's integral to their system and, they've you know, the, the whole note, the whole fundamental question of governance, well, we're living in a, a time which is very odd, if you think about it, because increasingly more and more of our interactions and the, the way that we define our self-identity and the way that we, we connect and share uh, solidarity in the most fundamental level are in places that are privately owned. And this is a very big shift. It's very different from the kinds of things we do in public spaces in the offline world or things we've done historically with things like sending mail through the public post. But at both ends, people are reading the, thing, the mail in the privacy of their own living room. And all of a sudden, we're in a situation where you know, the, the, the thing that channels and shapes um, our interactions – the medium that we use to interact and define ourselves ultimately um, is not even vaguely public. So, you know, it starts to bring up those kind of uh, sort of 
you know, terrible Big Brother-esque or uh, Jeremy Bentham-esque kind of concerns about, right. um, you know, not only being um, watched in the panopticon sense and that our stuff is potentially insecure or could be used against us in some, you know, dictatorial sense, but, but just that we don't have control and they can change the fabric of the interactions that we have by the next, you know, release, the next upgrade. And they think they like, we were talking about t- earlier, we were talking about how Skype improved quote unquote, the user experience with this new uh, user <laughs> interface. And we were all saying we were going to go back a version, but if it's something where, you know, a, a company decides to take out a modality in their tools that we were all using in some way to express some aspect of our character or explore parts of our self-identity. And all of a sudden they turn it off. Like, can they, I mean, should they have the right? I mean, what are we going to do? You know, march in the streets or something. I mean, it's a very <laughs> strange, it's a very strange situation. We find. Well, you know, you can be like Alicia Keys and Kim Kardashian and go on strike off of Twitter for a day to, to well, raise attention did. for AIDS. It was world AIDS it. day. They did that to raise money, though. I mean, that's well, different than... It's still, it's sort of a weird idea, right? Like, we're going to disappear for a day from not saying anything useful. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> so but in, in a way, it's sort of like saying, I'm going to give up crack for a day. Because obviously, Twitter <laughs> is their crack and cocaine well, and on, drug. Come on, come on. They're human beings like... Animals. I mean, I would give I'm money... Just on that. I, I give, just think it's funny. I would give money to put a burqa on Kim Kardashian for a day, for sure. You know, like just a change, a change in the way it is. It's funny. So, so there's, there's that just reminded me of this other thing I saw this week, which I think is completely wonderful. Um, there's, I'll give you some background for this. There's a campaign to make John Cage's 433 um, the, the UK number one for Christmas, um, <laughs> which is, which is the piece is actually it's a. It's a silent, it's nothing. It's a conceptual art joke. It's it's, explain what the John Cage is, yes. So it's a conceptual art piece of music that is um, four minutes, 33 seconds of silence in three movements and actually has a score which is all rests for multiple parts and so on. (laughs) Right. Um, That's so brilliant and only in Britain would would that be This refers back to last year. So last year, the last three years, the the winner of the X Factor, which is like um, a variant of American Idol, um, became the Christmas number one, like clockwork, and Simon Cowell was was you know, laughing away to the bank. Um, and so they, there was an online campaign to make um, Rage Against the Machine um, the Christmas number one, which actually succeeded. And so the, num- the number one was, um, uh, what do you call it? You know, you know the one, Don't Do What They Tell You, I can't remember what the actual song is. Um, so that this year they decided, this guy said, well, how about it's Cage Against the Machine? We'll make John Cage number one. <laughs> <laughs> and this, it's looking Great. like this may actually happen. You know, it's, people oh are starting God. to pick up, and it's got you know um, sixty thousand followers on Facebook and, and so on. So, so if it, I'm, I'm dying for this to happen because they will have to play four and a half minutes of silence for the number one record on on Radio One, and that will make all the oh my God, dead air <laughs> but, signals trip. But here's, well, well, here's, it, I just, here's what's my question about that. Though. Can we just I, add, in, add in here, sorry, quickly, Deb, that Tony, before we, we lose this flow about silence, that, that Tony Comstock in the, uh, in the chat room is saying that one thing tech does poorly is silence. It doesn't capture the meaning of silent moments. I, I don't want to interrupt. I hope that isn't taking you out of what you wanted to add. But Well, my Deb. question. No, no. I think it's, I, first of all, I think it's brilliant and only would happen in, in the UK. But second, 
does that mean it's going to be a silent um, in-studio silence? Do we get to hear the DJ shuffling around? Because the whole point of 433 is that it's not complete silence. It's I'm, that whatever music is happening in the moment. So no, what the they should really supposed, do is not play, play anything. Be at the piano and like hit the stop you know, pedal. I mean, they're, right, they're you're supposed actually... to, it's the, basically music is what's all around us every moment. So to really make it the right to play yeah, 433, they should turn the studio mic on and not play anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because you're supposed to do the silence where you are. Right. Um, but, I, but I think they're actually going to do a studio recording of it with, um, with famous guest artists um, on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Seriously? Perfect. Yes. <laughs> we are, it would be a great video. It's like a We Are the World video. Oh, that's awesome. There for, for four minutes and 33 that. seconds. Do you know what? It could be really fun. Everyone could get their own 10 seconds. It'd be lovely. And you Anyone can do it. And no Let's jingle bells involved. Isn't that wonderful? I think everyone could do well, it. That's except the thing, for you, know, you can imagine putting this on the jukebox to get rid of the Christmas music. It's, it's awesome. So to what degree is silence useful in tumbling you guys in being able to bring people together? Is it important? Well, I think it's the sense of the thing that Stowe said about the, the the friends who dial each other up and just keep connected all the day, so you can hear the ambient sound of the other person. You just know that sense of presence. You have a, a this, the same feeling you have of being in a house with someone, even if you're not talking. That's right. You can hear right. them rustling around. I think I think there is an interesting. Uh, this is a, a little bit of a distant analogy, but I think it's relevant. Uh, there's this recent study that that got a lot of buzz and and you know, I think is, is critical to this whole notion that I'm, I'm pursuing of social cognition. And that was the idea that um, there's certain ways that you can tell if small groups are going to be successful long in advance of them getting close to the end of whatever, you know, time frame of, you know, their, of their project or whatever. And one of the, the obvious indicators is that the conversations are balanced, that lots and lots of people get to speak and different people speak at different times and no single person or no subset of the people dominate the conversation. And so that isn't, it isn't silence, but it's anti-silence when you think about it, because in ineffective groups where, you know, let's say a group of 10 and two people dominate the conversation, the other seven or eight people, whatever, are silent more than they should be. And, right. and they, they are because of the actions of these other people or the collective ability, the collective will- willingness we have to fall into sort of socially stupid, social deafness, as some people call it. And um, uh, people are not, you know, participating in that theory of mind where they, they actively try to imagine the state of minds of the other people in the group and try to draw people out actively so that different voices, different perspectives are heard. So this great study was done by, uh, uh, you know, a group at um, Carnegie Mellon that showed that adding high IQ people to small groups does not inc- increase their performance. You mean increase, it does not increase the group's performance? That's right. But I think, wasn't there also a study, a gender study done like that? No, no, that no, showed no, no, no. The, the thing is it's strongly, strongly correlated with being female because women in general have higher levels of social sensitivity than men do. But men that are socially sensitive don't, you know, degrade the performance of groups. No, it's, it's, I mean, that's part of why I feel like the feminine is re- going to return to the kind of center of the culture. And it's what we call a feminine. I don't think you have to be female. I right. think it's that women still have, um, 
had more necessity. <laughs> it's been more necessary to learn those social skills. And oh, since well, we actually, haven't said it in a few weeks, women uh, are, are more skilled in phatic communication. <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah. just, so we just like to say that word because it makes everyone. Phatic. It's sort of a tunnel vision drinking game. That's right. That, that girl, that she's fat. That girl, right. she's fatic. That, 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 that along with me bringing up the third place. So you brought up Jane Jacobs. I can now say the third place. Well, this, 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 this study wasn't about uh, gender. It was about uh, effectiveness of groups, but it, it turned out to be the case that social sensitivity is correlated. strongly correlated. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. And it's part of why, I guess, you know, we're kind of into it because it's a relational thing where right? it's about treating dealing constantly with the relationship between people and not like a focus on information purely or data or like solve problem solving yourself. It's very different to problem solve collectively, I think. Um, so, so, so social cognition, this is your, uh, you're starting to do some thinking about the ways in which we pay attention socially to, to groups or we learn better as groups or we. Well, yeah, my, my, it's actually a research initiative I'm kicking off for 2011. And my goal is to pull together a bunch of research that's been done by disparate groups that it hasn't really been correlated um, in any way. And with the intention of applying it sort of uh, at a, almost at a micro level, how, how, how then should companies take advantage of these things that we're learning about how people are or are not effective in groups? Um, and, and, and it's some of the, the research, you know, by people that are, you know, from completely different, you know, backgrounds. Some are sociologists, some are cognitive psychiatrists, some are linguists. It's all over the place. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because there, you know, there's a, there are certain trends that emerge over and over again, but some things are consistently counterintuitive and, uh, you know, really. Give some examples. Well, I, I was, I was fascinated by this study. It was re recently re uh, reported this guy, Renold Junko, did a study at a place called Lock Haven University that I'd never heard of before. But um, he did a, a, a study and, and did a, you know, the appropriate, uh, you, know, uh, you know, creating two groups that were operating in completely different ways. But he made one group of people use Twitter um, very actively during the course of a course that they were uh, involved with. And um, they used it as sort of social note-taking, and they were supposed to report, you know, several times a day if they were, for example, going on an off-site to a, a business and report on what they saw. Um, the interesting thing is uh, this led to a higher level of social engagement, obviously, but um, it led to a GPA increase of one-half grade on average across all of the classes they were taking, not just the class in which they were using Twitter. So it has a very interesting like bleed effect into interesting. The, interesting. The, 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 the engagement they're having. And, and so you could, for example, I, I thought about this later, you could, in fact, try to take the argument and say, well, maybe they're just blending in better and they're doing the sorts of things that teachers like better and they get all those extra points for seeming to be involved and you know, being attentive in class and so on. Maybe they are, actually aren't mastering the material better. Um, which is a another big pedagogical argument going on in the United States, but right. however, right right now the way that schools work, they raise their grades significantly. I mean, it's really measurable, and so uh, according to the the things I've read on other studies, it may well be that 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 is caused by um, a well known effect 
Um, that is when you are focused on or you're confronted with the need to get into some very high stress sort of performance situation like taking a test or getting an interview in an interview. Um, it turns out that there's been some research that shows um, if you have a conversation with somebody before that, just somebody who's acting friendly and asking, you know, tell me about your background. Where did you grow up? And, you know, that getting to know you kind of friendliness. Um, people's performance going into a, an exam or, you know, giving a talk in public or the like um, goes up really dramatically. It's, I have so, to say, that's, so that's, this, this is so for me, obvious, just because I, yeah. I know I teach these unpresenting workshops. And one of the things I'm teaching people is how to run it. It is rather than do a one-to-many transfer of data, how to really run something that's more as a large conversation. And one of the first things that makes a difference for people is the sense of you're going to have a conversation with someone just like I'm talking to you right now. Right. Uh, and sometimes if you can't handle it with the whole room right away, do, do it with someone right before you get on stage. Because what happens is conversation grounds people, you get feedback, and it helps you be in the present moment, which is uh, stuff I guess Linda Stone likes to point to in her work and continuous partial attention. When you're right. present, in, in your heart rate goes case, down, yeah. you're, you breathe more easily, your parasympathetic system kicks in, and, you're, and by the way, you're more interesting. Like everybody is more interesting when they're present. That's kind of what all acting and performing is. So, I mean, I, it's great that they can measure it for people who can only read the data, but yeah, I've, I don't know. It just seems of course. I'd love to see the links to that study. Yeah, I mean, for the three of us, it's an of course because that's what we talk about all yeah, the this, time. This, this is a guy, Oscar Barra. He's he's yeah. done this study, and it, it is on the my website. I have a great, a post great. There. We'll find yeah, that social cognition post. We'll put that up. Right. Yeah. Um, and and uh, yeah, that that's a fascinating study, and it seems like it's related. In other words, it is. You can look for the correlation between Junko and Ibarra's, and it could be very much the case that. Those kids at Lock Haven University were twittering with each other right until the final exam or the midterm or whatever. And they were, you know, getting bathed with those, you know, brain chemicals that you get from, you know, being in contact with people that really care about you. And they walked into the test and just did better, even if it was a completely different test, not a test related to the one that, you know, Junko required them to use Twitter for. Right. Social engagement and being present, as Heather points out, and feeling connected to others relaxes and, right. and, and our focuses. brains fo- focuses, relaxes, co- provides confidence, right? right? We're, we're we social know, beings, we, right? We, we don't want the, to be alone. We know the opposite is, is the case, too, that you know people in stressful situations where there's a lot of confrontational dialogue and so on, uh, they perform less well. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, reading this, my, my my son does um, speech and debate at, at, with the school, um, which is obviously a, a stre- very stre- similar stressful competitive speaking thing. But the thing is, they they have a large group of them that do it together and work together on preparing the stuff and so on. So and they're, they're very successful with this right. because they feel like they're part of a team, even when they're standing up on their own and and, and speaking. Um, they've actually managed to turn this into a, a sort of this highly competitive thing into a strongly collaborative thing as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Those, those kind of contexts also turn out to be the place that when skills are learned, they get transmitted most quickly. So in other words, um, a bunch of people that actually work together a lot, that they're, they're very densely connected. There's a group of eight and they're all working together with each other. They're not in three little clicks, but they're all sort of connected to each other. So if somebody in that group 
learn some new skill that helps, for example, in debating, it's more likely that skill will tr get transmitted to the whole group if it's densely connected. I mean, it follows. It makes sense. So, uh, it, you know, that means that if a company was paying attention to these, these studies, they would try to create an environment where um, people were connected, uh, constantly touching base with each other. Um, and when working in groups, they would be looking for a kind of a balanced kind of communication style with, and, and working on people's social s sensitivity and trying to grow very densely connected networks so that when good techniques or uh, you know, new innovations arise, they could be transmitted quickly through the company as a whole. And that means the company would be more agile and more resilient. Mm. But the strange thing is, um, despite all this you know, mm. evidence that we've got from these new so, you know, cognitive sciences and linguistics and anthropology and sociology, they're really not paying attention. And I think part of the reason is it just it's not being collated very well for them. Because they're not reading psychology magazines and, uh, you know, uh, the leany journals in cognitive science. It's got to be, you know, boiled down to a, a practical level for these people. And that's a shame. It, it's, 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 a, it's a collection of sciences that increasingly are the things that people don't take when they go to college. Because people's college experience is being more and more, you know, uh, optimized, if you will, or minimized. is another way of looking at it. Uh, so they can you know, take their coursework and get out as quickly as possible. And there's, there's less of the, 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 the likelihood in, at least in American education, for people to be broadly educated and take psychology and sociology and anthropology courses. It's, it's becoming unaffordable, among other things. Yeah, I had a, in my last workshop, I had somebody who uh, runs the English department at Stanford there, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about um, the way they were teaching. And she was, it was nice to see really engaged in trying to figure out she talked a lot about how, that they're trying to reconfigure a lot about education, how to you know engage people more, how to make it different. And um, all the stuff people at the table were talking about to her were like a lot more self-directed things. Things are more collaborative projects that you actually wanted to work on. I mean, just the systems have been set in school. And I think companies haven't operated that differently than schools, that someone from the top tells you a thing to do, regardless of whether or not you care about it. And there's not a lot of attention put to how people work together or how they understand each other as people. It's been mostly about information and data. It seems kind of odd now that we have this era where you can access all the data you want anytime really easily. Right. The, the barrier to entry used to be the actual information. Um, so people spend a lot of time on getting the information, right? Now, that isn't as much, I mean, overly simplified. In the developing world, it's different, right? I... I, I, I People learn better, learn best by doing. That's always been the case, right? So, well, so social conversation is doing in a way. Well, this was um, there was some of the talk at Defrag week before last um was about Defrag. This. Sorry, I just want to put in for those who are listening. Defrag is a conference, a tech conference that takes uh, place in Boulder every year. That's very idea based. Kevin, am I right? Yes, yeah. It's, it's much. It's a bit more reflective than most tech conferences, less product based. Defrag um, rocks. Yes. Defrag does rock. But there was a, just talking about the difference between oral cultures and written cultures um, and um, the idea that what we're doing with these um, sort of continuous text messaging, 
um, Twitter, Facebook cultures are, are more like the oral tradition because we're talking to one another, even though we're doing it through text. Mm-hmm. There's an oral sensibility to there. But the thing that struck me when when somebody said this was that actually we ha- we do suddenly have a huge oral culture, which is YouTube, which is the world's second biggest search engine. Um, and what people search for on there are a little little stories that people tell each other, um, and even practical things like I'd like to I'd like to learn how to play this tune. Um, people search for um, that on YouTube and see somebody else play it on the piano and copy that rather than going through the abstraction of sheet music. Yeah. So um, our oral learning has been transferred to digital in a way. I'm trying to... Yes. Well, we, right? so, well sudden, suddenly, you know, the computer had to use text for a, lo- for a long time because that's all we could fit on it. Um, but, you know, we, we made them bigger and faster and made them possible to capture speech and video as well. Um, and now you can actually have a true... You know, oral culture and people sort of doing the things that they did with the oral tradition, where they where they take the story and retell it. Um, if you look at YouTube, you know, if just lip syncing is one sort of minor example of that, but you see people retelling the same song, retelling the same story, and doing their own versions of it, and then posting them back to this. Yes, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I, I'm 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 thinking about that as it relates to the people of the link talk that I usually give. So, you know, the, the religions always have great – Judaism has a great oral culture, which was at some point written down, yet conversations still happen around it, right? So you can have written, oral, digital. They all still reflect each other. As long as people can do things with them, they feel involved and are learning. Well, you know, that, 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 that notion of involvement is, is something that's cropped up in a lot of studies. So – um, if you were today to look at the best research and it said you wanted to modify the behavior of kids in elementary schools uh, around their eating, for example, um, the, the – Which it's apparently Jamie Oliver attempted and failed quite spectacularly at. Yeah, and got, in fact, yeah. if you look at the conventional way that they approach that, they get all the kids, they go into the, 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 you know, the, hall, the, the big lecture hall – and they run a video or they give a talk and they, they point at some pyramid or something and the, the kids all go away or the, 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 the people uh, grab the kids out that they think are most at risk and they have one-on-one conversations with them. But from what we have learned about how people learn and how people's behavior gets changed most uh, aggressively or most uh, uh, positively in this case, um, it would be much better to put them in small teams and have them talk amongst themselves on a regular basis about their questions about d- nutrition and diet and so on. And it turns out that it's like 30 or 40% at the minimum more effective than this one-on-one transmission approach. The kids will actually start to try to eat green vegetables and so on because they find out that their friend Mike or their friend Betty does. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but it, it, it you know, constantly strikes me uh, when, I, when I talk to uh, uh, people from big businesses or, you know, governmental agencies or whatever, that they aren't putting these findings into effect. They may hear about them in a Sunday supplement article or something, but when they go back to their, their school or their business or their government agency, they continue to do the same things. And it just constantly reminds me of that, that famous quote that Eric Bonobo offered up, which is that management will continue to use techniques that don't work rather than adopt things that they don't understand. Of course. Well, it's not. I think it's beyond understanding because honestly, Stowe, I don't believe that even if they understood it intellectually, they would adopt it either. Because I don't personally think that the uh, the obstacle isn't is is mental understanding. Really, what do you I, think it is? 
I think it's emotional, but that's my read on the world. So I tend to take things emotionally. I think it's I also fear. Think it's, I, I think, think it's, it's fear. Oh, you went to Thailand for a sec, Heather. I also here? think I've, I I also think it's it's um, sort of uh, just laziness that this is the way things are. I mean, we are the ty- more and more. I keep thinking about the world sort of is overly simplified. Two different types of people: those who look forward and like to change things because it's exciting, and those who are like, "No, I don't want to change anything. I want the status quo." And you know, people who tend to be senior managers at big organizations for the most part tend to like status quo. You know? well, that's, yeah. that's Virginia Postrel. She wrote yeah. that wonderful book, you know, The Future and Its Enemies. Right. And she I, characterized the world as being that split, exactly. I, I want to throw something. Can I, am I silenting still? Can you guys hear no. me? You're good. You, you're good now. Okay. I wanted to say, my first, my answer to you earlier, still in case it didn't come through, is I think it's fear is the obstacle. It's emotional. And we can get into that more if you like. But I want to throw something in here, and I hope it's okay with him that I'm telling the story. Uh, I guess I'll just I'll stay abstract with it. I spoke with a, a friend who works uh, in the in the gover- very high level government around tech policy, but he was making um, a really insightful observation about dealing with interdisciplinary problems that involve many could be many silos at a large company, could be many companies, could many, be many governmental agencies, and the skill set, which is really a a sort of tumbly skill set that's really necessary to get things done, especially things within bureaucracies done. And that that is a kind of person that is maybe different than even the two things. I haven't read Postrel's piece, Stowe, but someone who's maybe not an entrepreneur or not someone who wants to change everything, but not somebody who wants to stop everything, just somebody who knows how to make things move, especially mm. in unwieldy worlds. And and this person uh, cited Dick Cheney, who's someone who is he's famous for being very good at making uh. this happen. Right, oh. very good at pushing <laughs> things get through. On the show. <laughs> um, Say that again. Say that again. Should get Dick on the show. Yeah, sure, he's, he's a tumbler. Yeah. I got a few things to say to Dick Cheney <laughs> 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 before we get to the tumbling. Why don't you tumble from prison, Dick? Okay. But seriously, he is very good. <laughs> He's really talented at that. And I, I wonder, is that a different kind of personality or way of perceiving the world? Someone who gets stuff done in and between big groups, big systems. Well, it's it's a fascinating thing. Um, you know, I, I've, I've written a lot about, you know, my background is mathematics and computer science, so it's natural for me to go look at these things from, you know, sort of mathematical models to help understand um, the nature of influence. And uh, there's been a bunch of research that suggests the people that are the most interesting people to be connected to are not the ones that are most popular, not, don't, not the ones that have the most followers. And this is, a, a you know, an endless argument that's gone around for years, but you know, the mathematical analysis actually suggests something very intriguing, which is the people that are connected to people in very different social scenes, a lot of people in many different social scenes, are likely to be the bearers of new innovations, new ideas, new thoughts, mm. right? So if you're, you're a member at, at some level, not solely, but let's say principally a member of the tech scene, but you have a lot of contacts in the world of fashion, in the worlds of media, the world of music... That's extremely interesting because, you know, new ideas are going to come into the world of tech from these other places, not, you know, the same old tech ideas rekindled. And then, then by extension, which people in those groups 
that you might be connected to these other social scenes, the guy in fashion, the guy in music, the woman in, in media, which of those do you want to be most connected to? Well, the ones that are connected to many people in many socials, other mo- yeah, social this, things. Right. This is, I'm thinking this is Ariana Huffington's strong suit because she's no innovator, but she's a tremendous cross-pollinator of things. Right, right. So, so this has a mathematical explanation. It's, it's called betweenness, not centrality. Right? Ooh, betweenness. I like to think of it as liminality, but I like betweenness. betweenness. I think of it as the spokes and not the hubs. The, the people on the spokes who carry, you know, it's the cross-pollinating. It's very similar to some of the stuff that Hegel and JSB have been talking about, right? Right, the, exactly. The, the cross-pollinating is where true innovation comes. Keep talking, so this is great. No, Sorry. no, so that's so excited th- about it. Hey, can you <laughs> explain? I, I, can I ask you to just nerd out a little bit, but you might want to translate for those of us who aren't math people, how math shows yes. this betweenness? Okay, so, so it's, it's kind of like a page rank algorithm, right? So you, you can put a weight on people in a social network based on different kinds of metrics of what other nodes in the network are they connected to. And so if you're connected to a lot of other people in other social scenes, that is, they are relatively distant from the other people that you're closely connected to, right? But they themselves are closely connected to lots of people in another social scene, but also are connected to people in other social scenes, that gives you a real boost in your betweenness. You're acting as a bridge between one social scene and another because you're connected to people in other social scenes. And the, the higher your level of betweenness is, uh, is driven by the level of betweenness of the people you're connected to. So you can imagine like a page rank algorithm that's constantly going around and a- analyzing everyone's uh, metrics in a social network and they're constantly shifting because you're making new friends and getting connected to uh, or losing connections with old friends and so on. But um, ultimately this, these people have a tremendous impact on the world. It's significantly there. They, and they have a very large influence on the people they're connected to because people know that they are that sort of person. They're the, they're the bearer of new and innovative ideas. But you don't have to say somebody who in my own little way is, I think someone like this, I associate having this quality with being someone who never was able to belong to a group. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's true. Right? There, is a, there is a notion of the outsider in this. So it yeah. made it very at, difficult at, at, at a young age to like, like who, like you hang with everybody, but you don't really hang with anyone. Well, the, 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 another way to describe it, and, and Kevin and Heather and I have all described ourselves these ways, I've often found myself saying, wow, I don't fit anywhere. And so, or, or I fit everywhere. You know, it's, it is a skill to be able to build across those bridges and um, not only to build across them, I think the real skill of the tumbler is someone who can activate across both of those, right? Okay. And in a, in a meshed, connected world, we passionately believe that that is the skill of the future. It's nice to hear other people talking about it that way. Actually, there's some research which I can't, I don't know if I can say, maybe if we have this person on as a guest, they'll talk about it. But it's why I'm inherently frustrated with people who focus on the influence model as in the top of the pyramid. But I know of one or two are in, you know, research organizations who are focused businesses who are focusing on the spokes instead of the hubs. Because to me, it's the most ignored areas. How do ideas get from point A to point B? How do they connect to each other? How do people connect with each other across ideas? It, I mean, that's the, the – or, or the center for the edge stuff. You know, the edge yeah. people connect. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's – spoke, spoke versus hub is the wrong metaphor to use because yeah, uh, all right. of these yeah. – everyone – all of these people are connecting and they're all nodes and they, they have 
spokes connecting the other people. The I guess the is, big hubs, that when people only focus on the big hub in the graph, you know, right. but you're the mathematician, so you're right. right. No, yeah. no, and, 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 and the, the last comment to make is that, you know, the sort of thing we're talking about is sort of this ambassadorial kind of role that you act as an ambassador in other places as a representative of that other group, but you feel capable and confident to go and speak in Arabic right. in, in Iraq, even though your, your native language is English. It takes a certain kind of skill set to be able to, to do that. Um, and and that the interesting thing is this is the sort of um, obvious complement to the, the, the fundamental notion of, you know, what I call deep influence. Nobody really understands influence, right? All these things we're talking about, these are attempts to take our yardsticks out and measure something, hoping that it relates to something. And, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, it turns out it's one of those cases where people measure the stuff that's easiest to measure, and then everyone hopes that that lines up with something. So the easiest thing to measure is how many people right. think you are worth listening to, you know, popularity. Numbers are so important. If it doesn't have a number, it can't have meaning. Well, it's a, no, it's a simple number to get, which doesn't mean right. it's one that's actually very uh, useful. Well, <laughs> I heard a great, but I heard a great quote around numbers like that from, of all people, I think he was the CMO of American Express, John Hayes, who said, we tend to overvalue the things we can measure and undervalue the things we can't. Exactly. exactly. Don't you think, though, that to some degree, uh, the, this excitement around influence is because people want there to be some shortcut to mattering to people? Yes. Like, yes. if I can just get the right three That's people, well said, I won't have to make crap anybody needs or likes because I'll get the magic three people. And then magically, then of course, even if you get those people, somehow you're supposed to magically matter to them and matter to them in a way in which they're going to go spread their pixie dust for you. It just sounds like a complete fantasy to me. I, I, think, I think it's strongly correlated um, with what I think is a, a, a really interesting advance, which is the acceptance that there's this huge amount of what, what people are now calling big data. There's all this stuff out there that you can measure. We just couldn't measure it before. And now we have all these systems that makes some things measurable. It just, it, it, you know, not everything is equally interesting that you can measure. However, you know, the, 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 there's direct studies on, you know, that, that shed light on the notion of how we are actually influenced. You know, the uh, uh, Christiatis and Fowler studies, when they went back and looked at the Framingham, Framingham Heart uh, Survey, where they, you know, tracked, a really large group of people in Framingham over a long period of time. And then they kept track of all their relationships with each other, and they were able to infer some amazingly interesting stuff. And it turns out the people you know are not the biggest impact on your likelihood of being fat or smoking or high risk for diabetes or whatever. It turns out it's like the third neighborhood is that friends of friends of friends, the people you don't know, and there's millions of them. When you start you know, going out, the average person knows 150 people, and then those 150 people that you know well all know 150 people, and some of them are the same, but it becomes hundreds of thousands of people, and all of those people know 150 people, and they're all connected, and they're not very far away from you. They're probably living in your area, or a large number of them are, and they're all talking to each other on the phone, and they're you know, swapping notes about TV shows and which sports they like, and, and this, this is like, a, you have to think about it sort of like, uh, you know, an atmospheric pressure around you. As you're a little individual being surrounded by these shells of millions, ultimately that third shell is like millions and millions of people making decisions and deciding what food they like and what food they don't. And the next thing you know, you're eating in 
you know, Mexican, uh, you know, Korean barbecue tacos on the street <laughs> with your cousin. And it's like a, it's like hip. And like, how did that happen? Well, it happens. That's how, that's how, you know, raves and trends and so on come along is because it catches fire with some large number of people out there, millions of people. And enough of those people get into it that it, you know, the likelihood of somebody dragging you to go have, you know, a Korean barbecue taco on the street is very high all of a sudden. And next right, thing you know, right. you're, you know, you're now nuts about Mexican barbecue, I mean, uh, Korean barbecue. And it becomes easier to be nuts about it if you're someone who needs social affirmation because if it's feel if you feel like it's trending, it it lets you get the equivalent of that conversational thing. Another study we're citing where you feel like I can speak now because someone's really listening to me. Like, right. oh, someone else likes a Korean barbecue taco. I'm part of a thing. You hear about it on TV. It's in the newspaper. Uh, some friends of yours are muttering over uh, over a beer and. Talking about the Korean barbecue, they're like next. To, it's just cropping up everywhere, and it just seems natural. And you just, you know, next thing you know, you're you're buying cowboy boots because all of a sudden cowboy boots are hip or whatever. And and the thing is that we're not, we don't necessarily ever effectively track how this influence works. Um, and and you know the thing is, none of this is actually being supported by any tools. You know, I'm a technologist at heart. I want to go find technology that will help predict or you know, from the viewpoint of businesses, they want to actually influence, you know, these large, you know, this, this, this mass, what I call dark influence out there. Well, and, so and actually they, a lot of businesses they, are doing that these days. They, they aren't really, they aren't grappling There's, with the, the, the tens of millions of people influencing hipsters in Brooklyn yet. They're not looking at those numbers. They're, yeah, well, they're starting to in some, some of these groups. My fear is, and, you know, and I work with some of them, but it's, 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 I, I, I would just want all that information to be transparent so that we could all, and even, and even if it, whether it's for business or for other things, if you, um, it, it, to me, the most fascinating part of that equation you're talking about is the people who bridge those edges. And, yeah. and I still think when people look at the big data, they still just look at the, oh my God, this big thing is trending, but not sort of to be proactive. I mean, if a, if a business really wanted to be helpful as opposed to just marketing at, they could actually be proactive about knowing what's coming and build good products and services for next year's whatever. Right. Right. Or, you know, or, or impartial, you know, non-monetarily oriented groups could be trying to like get people to eat more healthily or whatever. Right. You know, but the point is that, that we don't have systems that really tap into that at all. I mean, we've got this no, research, okay. we've got stuff that, that does a piss poor job of like, sure, I can get the full Twitter stream. I can pay the money from Twitter and get the full stream of stuff coming out of it. And they're doing some kind of analysis, but trust me, I've talked to a lot of those companies. I'm yeah. a consultant to a bunch of those companies and nobody is trying to get at the stuff yet. Really. That I'm talking about, they're trying to do the superficially easiest stuff that yes, they can right. sell to companies because that's what companies understand. They're right. not trying to do this deep analytic treatment of what we know is really going on. Because companies won't buy it. <laughs> so, because? Because they don't understand it. They don't really don't understand it. I mean, they go and talk to some people about betweenness. They look at me like I'm a bug. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I respectfully agree and disagree. Certain companies aren't, but this, the, 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 the ones in the leading edge bring in folks like Valdis for in, Krebs, who oh, yeah. talks about network weaving Brilliant. internally. They work with the... Uh, 
Advertising Research Foundation and some insights in academia to understand this. I think from a commercial startup point of view, yeah, everyone's taking the easy route and just looking at, ooh, how many times has someone said X online? But exactly. but there are but but you are as usual prescient and ahead of your time. These 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 things will be happening. Oh yeah, and, I, you know, I, I and know. it's along Clay's, which we quote but, endlessly, filter failure. But I think guys- without the human side of it, it's not to get it back to the tumbling. Big data without people and better tools for the peop- the human softer side that we talk about here, it's not going to go anywhere. Oh no, well, I guess. 100% what, I guess- or what, like, so Deb, it's because the crossing over to the people who are real different from you, that stuff still you were talking about with the betweenness is a real human skill. You can't right. machine your way into That's- that. And I guess what I'm wondering from what you guys are talking about is even if we have better technologies tracking influence, cause oh, that sounds appealing to people who do marketing, like they're going to have some kind yeah. of control over other people. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice fantasy? Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it's so emergent that just because you know how the last thing tracked doesn't may not tell you anything about how the next one will. Well, it will. It will at some schematic level. It's just it's not it's not absolutely predictive, right? So, I mean, it's it's right. a, it's a general, you know. So that was uh, the, the the link I just shared was was something Pete Warden wrote um, about <laughs> the big data snake oil. And who's Pete, saying, Pete Warden, if you don't mind? Um, Pete Warden's. <laughs> Um, he's a guy who's done a lot of good big data stuff. He built the um, open heat map thing that that gives you overlays on maps of of data sets. Um, his, his, his blogs. He, did, were, he did the heat map of uh, you know venture capital in uh, Cal- in right. San Francisco, for example. It showed the right. big elbow there going down Second Ave and right through South Park. <laughs> and it, and he, and he's so he's um, but he's written this this quite nice post saying. There's a lot of people now saying, oh, if we just take all this data and correlate it, we can find out these, these great insights. Um, and actually, um, a lot of it is um, not really telling you any, anything that, that's that interesting or it's, um, it's telling you stuff you already know or is already, already measurable. Um, and actually, you'll be better off getting pe- you know, talking to people and encouraging them. I think that, you know, linking back to the, the sort of that, that cage against the machine idea, you can sit there and plot influence for that. But the reason that works is, is it's because it's a really funny and clever idea, um, not because of who's saying it. And I think, Wait, the, the, say that again, Kevin. Say that so, last part again. So, you know, this, this comes back to the did this idea spread because some influencer said it or because it was an interesting idea? Right. Um, and I think that you know the the, the Duncan Watts um, stuff yeah. I point I pointed to um, says that actually if you look at this these things can start from anywhere and spread and they spread because the people find them interesting and pass them on right. not because some magic person said it um, and if it's an interesting idea eventually it will pass through the well connected person because they're well connected and they will see it but that right. doesn't right. mean that they're the they're the influencers that that made it spread no, um, it's just... more that it, it just you know because they're well connected it's more likely to pass it's through it's more that. likely to spread and that's the point where that I was very vaguely talking about we're focusing on sort of the spoke and how those things pass through versus everyone's focused on the influencers. I, we don't, um, I, we wanted to bring in a comment on this and hear what you Stowe, maybe you and uh, Kevin think about this. Ami from our chat room said, isn't this why everyone's so obsessed with game mechanics today in a way? Because, Ooh, with game mechanics, I can get people to pass stuff on and get more engaged. And it, it, it's, it's an interesting way of connecting those two things that we were talking about. I hadn't thought about it. Well, that's well, I, I, yeah. I, I just wanted to make a comment about the thing before the game mechanics, which sure. is, which is um, you know, uh, 
when people first started tracking how bees worked or social insects worked, they figured, or, or how, um, you know, uh, you know, geese migrate, they figured there was somebody in charge and they were sending signals somehow to tell everybody else what to do. And this is sort of a, 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 a template in the human mind. And we look for this. So when we talk about, um, you know, how influencers influence others to, to do things, we start to think about that model that there is a, uh, uh, you know, somebody who is the, the head firefly that synchronizes all the other fireflies. And it turns out not to be the case that all of these things are emergent behaviors based on a simple set of rules that all the participants are involved in. And the same thing happens with people. We're all human. We, we want to gossip. We want to pass information around and we pass things around that we find are influencing, interesting. But then all of these other dynamics happen sort of at a next level of scale. When you put people together in these networks, some people are connected to a lot of people in other social scenes. So when they think something is funny, it gets spread much more broadly. It gets spread from the tech scene to the fashion scene to the music scene, the media scene. And if it is, in fact, an intrinsically interesting idea, well, that intrinsically interesting idea has spread now potentially more quickly because of the agency of this person. But it's not just because that person is great or, you know, everyone bows down to them. It's just that they have these connections, right? It doesn't make them Superman. It just makes them connected, right? But in and, the future is just being – if you're trying to get your ideas spread, then then you don't care. You just want to be connected to a lot of connected people, right? Well, so, no, it, if you want ideas – It won't matter if your quickly, ideas yeah. still stink though. Right, exactly. If but that's what people ideas, forget. They won't spread. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. the same that's thing the with point good I wanted to make. Yeah. That's the point I want to make. But I know. You said, it so, you said it so much more succinctly than that. <laughs> you know what? I just want to go on record that that's the first time it's ever happened. Oh. Yeah, that. that is true. That is true. What's Yay, that? Heather. <laughs> Woohoo! It's great. You should be on more. This way I, I can just come in with the line at the end. You guys are really covering everything so beautifully. <laughs> um, we are kind of close to out of time, unfortunately. It is just, just – though. I just want to say that like – it's like you speak in research study. <laughs> you do speak in research study. You, 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 you strung together before four research study names all in a row. And I was I trying to type them all down. Couldn't get them. So you have to give us – you'll have give to give us, us show give notes. Give us cliff notes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's in my, it's in my, uh, my, my blog somewhere. <laughs> Great. Thanks. It's somewhere in your big data. No, no. It's in that Whoa. social post, I'm pretty sure. Or look at the tag. You know, the, you know, one of the things that Tumblr is good at actually is the tags. Yep. Mm. The search sucks, but the tags are good. So, well, well this is the, the commonplace book thing. Is is is, is that the blog is the new commonplace book book where you collect your ideas together that you then can then point back to later. And that's a, one right. of the things I'm I'm realizing is that I'm losing that with Twitter because it's it's all flowing into this thing that I'm not collecting anymore. Right. Good point. Um. Yeah. I just Tumblr, wanted... Tumblr is better for that. Dangerous. Myers is, is disagreeing, saying that stinky ideas can propagate very well. But I guess what I would say is tell that to somebody who runs marketing for Microsoft. They spend enormous, enormous, enormous amounts of money trying to spread, pick a, a, pro, a service or product of theirs. And if it's no good for the most part, you know, you never hear about it. it no, no one cares. You know, remember their music player? Whatever. Like they, they poured Zoom, it. Zoom, Zoom. Yeah. 
there's got to be something there. I mean, I think sort of, mod, you know, somewhat stinky things maybe spread somewhat. <laughs> but if it's just stinky, <laughs> that, that'll be the elaboration of my theory of the stinky idea. Well, that, so it's, it's <laughs> I think um, Myers means stinky ideas are ones that he, do, he doesn't um, approve of. You know, the, the, right. the ideas that can spread have, have an appeal and a sort of cultural resonance or an emotional resonance. Yeah. It um, but when you, th- I think the particular thing of trying to couple it to a product, um, th- th- this was, there was this sort of fascinating moment where um, the, the filmmakers realized that um, people could now discover that this, this, market, this film they've spent a huge marketing budget on was actually a dog um, by the end of Friday um, and their weekend box office would be down. So um, because the word of mouth would get out that actually this thing stinks because we can now all talk to each other. Um, and and there was this sort of idea that you couldn't make a movie on Twitter, but you could ruin it because people could find, could <laughs> say, "Sorry, it sucks." Yeah, you um, couldn't make it a success. Like Snakes on a Plane did not make that movie a success. Right, right. Or, or or you know, whereas um, the thing is that sort of as the information propagates faster, we can we can warn each other that this thing is a dog as quickly as we can um, say that this thing is good. Um, but sort of a a well written sort of spiky critique can spread really really quickly. Yes, yeah, that's that's the, you know that's I mean you know to, to tie it back to the WikiLeaks thing um, is how is, did we miss WikiLeaks the, this whole show? Okay, you guys, right. we have five minutes and we got to give it to WikiLeaks and then we're gonna have to wrap up. And so, Kevin's so, gonna pull it out for us. I'll see Let's do it, Kevin. Let's go. So the thing that you know, the thing we're seeing with WikiLeaks is like the gender thing we started with, where there's this cognitive dissonance exploding, where we're seeing people saying Julian Assange should be prosecuted for treason. He's not an American. Um, he, we should be hunting down with CIA drones and kill him. Um, you know, this is the, this is this sort of massive overreaction to this thing, that, which is that he has published a bunch of information online. Um, that is suddenly sort of very, very visible to lots of people that they can then go through and say, well, is there a story here and reconstruct the story from that? If you, again, if you just had the giant data dump of the whole thing um, without a bunch of people going through it trying to find the interesting pieces, that wouldn't be enough. But because we can do that, because we can examine it in parallel and say, here's an interesting story within this, that is the thing that's threatening to the, to the, the people who are used to that, that stuff not being visible or not being Public. The architects of power. Yes, Noam Chomsky. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> hey, yes, and I was the first to mention Noam Chomsky. Ah, <laughs> oh, there you go. Ooh, special Ooh. prize. We need a little little graphic. <laughs> little bag of beans. Badges bag. we can give out. <laughs> so, yes, the, the badges on Tumble Vision will all be like really philosophers. I hate, and- I hate game mechanics. If I'm ever back on the show, we should talk about why game mechanics don't Oh, work. that'd be great because I do think it's part of, um, a part of all of this. We got to do that one live. Cause I feel like that's something that really needs like in person. When we do TumbleCon, man, that thing needs some serious spanking. The oh, game yeah. We, we're going to have, we, we are collecting great panel sort of, versus panels, <laughs> you know, sort of right. tumbling panels for the, for TumbleCon. There'll be game mechanics. We'll be debunking every theory, influencer <laughs> theory. <laughs> the whole entire TumbleCon, you know, agenda will be just debunking everyone else's theories. That's <laughs> and you know what? Get everybody to come. And oh, we'll have all the mar- chief marketing officers. Yes. Yeah. We'll get everyone to come. It'll be great. Honestly. I want to be there. Oh, no, you have you to be there. You be there. Don't Stop. worry, we're coming it's to get it. It's an orgy. I'll be there. Exactly, they'll be singing. 
You're officially okay. one of the first people to sing on Tumblr. You right? just oh. call me, and I'll <laughs> be there. <laughs> I'll reach out my and hand Michael, to it's you. Jackson too. Great. I have faith in all you do. Okay. <laughs> you guys, we've we've been eating spike in the who's spike in the eggnog. We've come to another hour of idea, sex, orgy on Tumble Vision. This has been an awesome show. You will have to come back, Stowe, and yes, we're going to have to. I missed uh, the orgy part, though. We were oh, in it. Uh, yeah. it oh, like, okay. It was an idea orgy, Stowe. Oh, I'm sorry. Stowe, you're so binary. <laughs> <laughs> you need a text box. All, Talking about gender, men, not sex, damn it. All men suffer from Asperger's to some extent, as they say. No kidding. Especially, <laughs> and you know, men in tech, exponentially more. Yeah, but Men in tech who live in San Francisco, tenfold. Keep, can, I can keep going. Okay. <laughs> You guys, I've got to wrap up. So it's been a fantastic, fantastic show. Myers, thank you. Will if we have you make us a bricolage badge? Anyone who's in the room, if you want to make ridiculous badges for the show or little like snack ones, we would freaking love it. Little graphics that would be great. So Tony Comstock, thanks for all your great insights about important silences online, and uh, Amy or Ami for joining us. I- you could tell me. We have time. a lot of new people. Lots of new great folks, and it's been a, a wonderful time. Stowe Boyd, thanks for joining us. Enjoy Peace the out. Hudson Valley. Peace out. I'll be in Hudson Valley in a couple in a couple weeks. I'll be looking you cool. up. Cool. And we'll be back next week with Willow uh, from Join the Impact, one of the leaders of the online LGBT activist uh, changes that happened after Prop 8. Uh, someone who's been very, very involved in grassroots organizing in lots of interesting ways. And it's timely because on December 6th, the Prop 8 uh, case is going to be heard in the Ninth Circuit and there's going to be all kinds of stuff going down. So um, we hope you will join us then. And please, everyone who's, who's uh, listening, go to iTunes, look up Tumble Vision, rate us and review us and ask your friends to do the same and we will find some Thing delightful to reward you with. Uh, have a wonderful week, Kevin and Deb. Any news you want to, or anything you want to pimp? Pimp <laughs> plug. No, I'll be in Boston next week. I'm pimping Hanukkah. May your festival of lights, may your oil last for more than eight days. May you, all your Hanukkah presents be fun. That's it. Kevin Marks. Um, there's a conference coming up in San Francisco run by O'Malley and Co., which I'm just trying to find the name of. Network. So, Network. Network next week, um, which we didn't quite get there in time to be, do the full tumbling thing, but I, I think there's definitely some uh, tumbling thinking around that. I'm speaking there. Great. So, so I'll come along and, and tweet those Stowe's speeches. And uh, it will be at some future ones. I would like to uh, encourage everybody, if you're looking for a fun Hanukkah or holiday gift, to check out Nosh, my comedy EP, including Microsoft for the Christians, Apple or the Jews. That is a great, <laughs> which is a classic. Great classic, I have it's to say. Heathergold.com slash store. Also, I've had the first uh, Bring Unpresenting, in this case to Berlin, Facebook page started. You can check that out on Facebook if you want Unpresenting, which will teach you to tumble and uh, how to engage the room in your city. You can start a group. Also, once there's 10 people in any city, I will come do it. So uh, I leave you with those two things. And I want to thank producer Andrew Hazlitt 
for putting together a great show tonight and Denise Caruso for hosting and bandwidth tonight and for her patience with me and we'll see you all next week. Peace out. Bye.